You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Proof Text. I'm Michael Halcombe and thank you for listening. Today I'm here with uh, my friend Jeremy Spencer and one of my old professors and college soccer coach, Dr. Charlie Starr. Uh, glad to have you both here. Jeremy, you've been a guest on the show a few times. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself to reorient our viewers and listeners uh, to who you are? Well, uh, thanks for having me on again for, what is this, maybe the fourth time. Um, I'm uh, uh, living in Hawaii and uh, recently finally purchased a new uh, bagpipe practice channer. So I'm going to get back to studying the pipes. <laughs> and working hopefully before the end of this year, I'll finally have my own set of pipes. And uh, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm a musician, if that doesn't give it away, um, songwriter, composer, um, and recently uh, a published author, thanks to Glossa House. And yeah, and uh, and thanks to also uh, a lot of training and instruction from uh, our esteemed guest here, Dr. Charlie Starr who uh, introduced me to C.S. Lewis. So if anyone is really sick of me quoting Lewis, this, this is the guy to blame. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, You're also uh, just sort of a newly appointed part-time worship leader at the bridge church Mm, here where we both attend. And uh, so that's cool to to see putting your musical skill to use there. So Charlie, uh, Hope it's fine to call you Charlie. It's we're like twenty years removed from uh, yeah. university together. So tell us a little bit about you and uh, what you're up to, where you're from. Well, I um, I've been counting up the years, and I think I'm in my thirty fourth year as a teacher. Uh, twenty five years uh, teaching at uh, colleges, and I'm currently in a uh, a four year school in West Virginia where I teach English and humanities. Um, and I also get to teach uh, part-time for a seminary uh, where we focus on um, the romantic theology of the Inklings. So I get to teach Lewis, and I get to teach Tolkien um, and uh, some others who are associated with them. So that's a lot of fun. I, I do get to do a lot of writing. That's one of the advantages of being a college professor. And uh, my ninth book just came out in December, so I'm I'm excited about that. And New projects are on the way. I am an uber C.S. Lewis geek. Um, I've, I've written books on Lewis, and um, the most geekiest quality uh, in my Lewis work is the fact that I have studied Lewis's handwriting uh, to the point that if you show me a Lewis text, I can tell you roughly what year he wrote it in. Um, mm. and, and that came primarily from spending two to 300 hours looking at the letter F in Lewis's handwriting. So you, you know it's bad when a guy is the world's effing C.S. Lewis scholar. So there you are. Nice. And, uh, but I have a lot of fun with that. I, I have fun working with Lewis manuscripts. I got to work with one just this week, in fact, a mm. brand new manuscript that I got to authenticate. So just tons of fun being able to uh, work in the Lewis world. Wow, yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember in in college when we would go on these soccer trips. I remember you always carrying a stack of books around 
and I can still still see in my head these stacks of books with sticky notes, sticky notes yep. popping out the pages <laughs> and. I believe at that time, I don't know, were you working on a dissertation or? That or, was my dissertation on C.S. Lewis. Yes. 350 pages on one sentence from Paralandra. So, yeah, that's exactly what that was. Was it the uh, triple distinction from truth, from fact, truth and myth? Truth from myth and both from fact, yeah. Oh, interesting. One Jeremy, of the most mind-boggling uh, lines I've ever heard. <laughs> Jeremy, if you could bump your volume up a little, that'd be great. But... Well, what sort of occasioned this chat between the three of us was Jeremy Jeremy uh, published this book on the Psalms. I helped him edit that. We published this last year. And in, yeah, there it is. Charles holding it up. <laughs> Frame with the Psalms. Uh, Jeremy, I imagine that's cool to see your professor holding that up. Um, and then... I saw on Facebook where you, Charlie, had shared this and you'd made a good comment about it. And then Jeremy subsequently had shared some of your comments that I think you sent him an email or a text or I don't know where it came through, but yeah. he was sort of sharing this with me. And I have some of those here. And um, so I want to talk a little bit about this. And then I also want to talk a little bit about some of your some of the stuff you've written, Charlie. But let's start with this Psalms book that that Jeremy's written. And the first sentence I see here is from you, Charlie. It says, this book is filled with deep spiritual insight. This isn't a book just written by some guy who works at a church and thought it'd be cool to share what he thinks are his deep understandings about Jesus. This book, this is a book written by a man after God's own heart. This is a book written by someone who breathed the air of the Psalms, not some casual reader or worse some theologian trying to draw abstract truth from the text. <laughs> Let's just talk about that. Like what, what were you seeing in the book that sort of led you to that kind of conclusion? Well, you want to, you want to, you want to use metaphors like um, scent and flavor. Uh, uh, Jeremy captured the flavor of the Psalms, the scent of a poet like David. I, I certainly don't want to make fun of theologians. My first degree is in theology itself anyway. But when you read the Psalms, you, you need to read them as what they are, and what they are is poetry. And poetry is, a, is an alternative kind of communication, a very ancient kind of communication, uh, one involving um, the central self uh, more than the intellect, though not ignoring the intellect, and um, and and one involving the imagination. Uh, so I'm I'm reading um, Spence's book, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, for the folks who are who are watching and listening, I I've always called Jeremy Spence. So I'll probably um, dive into that. I think that may actually be your fault, uh, Spence. That um, I think you wanted everybody to call you that back in the day. I don't remember now, but anyway, he's just Spence a lot of times. But um, I, I got the sense of somebody who didn't just surface read the Psalms, who didn't just read the Psalms uh, in a light devotional manner, uh, but someone who um, read the Psalms to encounter God uh, more than to divine truth even, uh, read the Psalms to have an experience. Um, and, um, and, and it when I say it felt to me like somebody who was after God's own heart, I was, in fact, echoing what was said about King David. 
he was a man after God's own heart. So there's 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 something central. You 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 can't quite um, put it into words, but there's something central in the way that Jeremy approaches the Psalms in this book, which I think is authentic to what the Psalms are. Mm. Um, and it certainly shows the the reality of a of a man with spiritual insight who has walked in Christ uh, for a very long time, uh, bringing all of his pain along. And often what I was reading was something that um, I, I would have liked to have said, wow, I wish I wrote that. Um, mm. And I think I said that over and over again, because, uh, again, sometimes the insights were just, oh, well, that's so me, and that's so me, and that's so me. And what I guess is that's probably so a lot of people. Um, mm. And that's why I think the book could be uh, super helpful. So just, just you know, way to go, kid. Um, wow. You know, I've known Spence. Uh, uh, Michael, I've known you guys for a very long time. And out of the blue, Spence says, hey, I've written a book. Okay, mm. send it to me. I want to read it. Um, and then I'm just, and, and this doesn't say anything negative about Jeremy, because I've always appreciated him as what I call a bard. I've always felt like you're a bard, um, but I didn't expect you to be a prose writer. Mm. Um, and of course, your writing is very poetic, even when it's uh, when it's prose. Sometimes it's straight poetry here in this book, but sometimes uh, it's prose. But even the prose is is rather like Paul, uh, say for example in First Corinthians 15, where he he's writing prose, but he waxes poetic. So I was just really impressed with how with the quality of the writing, this good style in the writing. Uh, as well as how good the insights were, um, and there were there were times when I was just absolutely delighted, and and thought to myself, well, this is far too good, uh, uh, and far above my expectations. Not that my expectations were in any way uh, bad. So good on you, well done, praise the Lord. Well, Jeremy, uh, hearing that, I mean, what what are you thinking? What's your initial sort of reaction? Um, well, the first one is just kind of being overwhelmed. Um, I have moments where sometimes I think, wow, I wrote something really profound and I'll walk away from it. And then I come back to it and it's surprising. Like, did I, did I write that? And, mm. um, and I have the sense of, uh, that uh, other musicians have this experience. Even Van Halen says some of the stuff that he created, he feels like that, that didn't really come from me. Like there's something out there inspiring, you know, high art and creativity. And um, you could go in the direction of Greek mythology and the muses. And uh, there's different people who've written about the, the strange place that where, wherever creative thoughts come from and art comes from. My best stuff, I, co I come back to it and I'm often surprised by it because it feels like it's not, not mine anymore. But it, it, it seemed to have come from somewhere else. And um, so however much praise I might receive. I'm always thinking like, this is for someone else's work. This is, uh, this isn't mine. It came, you know, it seems to have come from, from elsewhere. And, um, mm. yeah, I, I, yeah, thank you, Charlie. I, it's, it's overwhelming to, to hear that from you and, uh, means a lot. Well, you know, uh, Tolkien said very much the same thing about the Lord of the Rings. He said it, it wasn't invention. It was, uh, reception. So, so it was mm. handed to him. Uh, as he was writing it. And of course, he worked really, really hard uh, on it yeah. with lots of revision, lots of rewriting. But he, he always said he felt like uh, that story was was given to him. So 
Um, there's some quality, and even C.S. Lewis says there's some quality in which the muse is real. Hmm. What What is the let's let's stick here for a minute. What is the um, I guess what is the relationship if either of you can sort of put your finger on it between uh, that sort of receiving inspiration or receiving a gifting, being a conduit as it were, and being the one doing it. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a little hard to parse that out. Uh, sometimes I, I think in preaching, right, that happens quite often. Uh, you'll preach a sermon and someone will come up to you and say something about, oh, that really spoke to me or moved me. But on the other hand, it really wasn't, say, me, like doing it. Or you mentioned Van Halen or, yeah, musicians, uh, how just singing a note or a chord or, or playing a chord can just rattle <laughs> rattle you so what, what how do we yeah how do we parse this out or can we parse it out yeah that's a good question uh, a couple things hit my head one is that moment when um the uh levites or priests i can't remember which who were carrying the ark uh and had to uh they were about to cross the jordan so mm -hmm. i guess we're in the book of joshua yeah. They had to cross the Jordan, um, and, the, and God was going to stop the waters. Um, so God was the one who was going to stop the waters, but they weren't going to – he wasn't going to do it till they got their feet wet. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so there's this, this is kind of cooperation. The second image I think of is the image of um, the concept of uh, inspiration for Scripture. So uh, as I understand it, the Christian concept for inspiration – is is God breathed, but not God dictated. Uh, so as we read um, the various writers, especially in the New Testament, we get not only the Holy Spirit inspiring them to write things down, but we also get the man himself. So mm -hmm. when we read the letters of Paul, we know we're reading the letters of Paul. When we read John's gospel or his letters, we know that we're reading John. Um, the the man, the person's personality. Uh, comes out in the text so that the text is like Christ himself, both human and divine. Um, mm -hmm. So I suppose there's probably an imaginative quality in artists, which is perhaps gift from birth. There's nothing supernatural about it. Uh, it's mm -hmm. just sort of the way God built us. But I'm also willing to bet that there is something uh, supernatural. Um, Lewis in Paralandra even refers to this idea of a society of mind. Uh, for the creation of myth, where God is working through all kinds of peoples within their own worldviews, within their own imaginations to produce mm -hmm. art. Um, and, 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 and so there might be that supernatural element where there are larger powers speaking uh, through the artist, but the artist is also involved. Um, if, if, if it's being handed to me by God, but I don't write it down, um, it's not going to get written down uh, in the same way that they had to get their feet wet. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then I wonder if there are often to also times when maybe um, there's even a, a greater insertion uh, uh, for Christians, especially when the Holy Spirit um, just, just hands the thing over at an even higher level. So if we're talking parsing, um, and I really like that word, maybe we could talk about, uh, a natural imagination, the way all people have been gifted by God, 
um, a, a general spiritual influence um, where, where or s- things seem to happen on some sort of, um, oh, if we wanted to get scientific, we might say quantum level and, mm. um, and something comes to us that's that's us, but it's more than us, and then maybe an extremely or a, or a more specifically supernatural moment where perhaps um, inspiration comes to the artist and and uh, they write something that's that that can endure. Well, that's mm. off the top of my head. That's not too shabby, is it? That's not too bad. <laughs> I'm supposed to follow been, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we've talked before about uh, Jeremy about like. Uh, synergy, right? The, mm. the theological synergy where humanity <clears throat> is working in tandem uh, with God in a sort of pretty incredible partnership. But yeah, I mean, do you have any re- reflections as you're thinking about that? or um, I suppose maybe in relationship to synergy, I, I'm immediately I have the image of a violin in my mind and you have the relationship of the bow to the string and the bow creates the vibrations, um, but it's the fingers that create the melody. So there's a sense of God creates the vibrations um, that allow for the sound to happen, the inspiration to happen, or, or whatever word you want to use. And then we take those sounds and we take those, you know, that um, friction, and we can shape it and create it and put our own kind of voice on it. And interesting, you said. Uh, Charlie, you said uh, about being scientific. I thought about um, like the human voice and our bone structure uh, is a resonance chamber. And the reason we have different sounding voices is because the bone structure is shaped a little bit differently in each of us. And there's different factors that play into it. I, I can't really go, go too deeply into it because I know just a little bit about the voice. So you have someone who's unbelievably unique and phenomenal like Freddie Mercury. He's got unusual things in his face, uh, a massive overbite, a very strong jawline, all of these things that create his resonance chamber. And one of the most surprising things, as unique as his voice is, someone comes along like 40 years later, this guy named Mark Martell, who's a, a used to sing in a Christian band called Down Here, is almost the vocal spitting image of Freddie Mercury, but he's a little bit different. And even even that, his own voice kind of comes through, even though he's got all that. I mean, the likelihood of having this, a similar resonance chamber to someone like Freddie and the ability to sing incredibly well seems unlikely. And I suppose through all of this, there's a sense in which just God's trying to reveal himself through each individual person. And Charlie, you'll have to maybe check me on this or correct me on this. I don't know if it was Lewis or McDonald has something about the idea of God having a man shaped hole in his heart that each of us uniquely fit into. And there's this idea that each of us are created to reflect God in an absolutely unique and particular way that no one else in all of human history has reflected God. So God is so vast and so um, multifaceted that it would take billions and billions of human souls throughout thousands of years to continually unfold and reflect his glory and his beauty and his truth and goodness and all of that stuff. Uh, And I think, yeah, those are the thoughts running through my mind. I think about how art kind of translates between inspiration and, and it's just, I think a big part of it is just God trying to reveal himself and, and his revelation is his invitation to enter into his joy 
um, ultimately. That's nice. I really like what you had to say in talking about the the relationship between the you know body and voice. Uh, so therefore, body and and the music that comes from it, the the uh, the art, um, because um, and I think this is something the Psalms are a great example of um, art, whether it's music or or literature or film or whatever, is an embodiment. It's it's incarnational. It's mm-hmm. word becoming flesh, which is something Dorothy Sayers talks a lot about in her book on Christian artists, the mind of the maker. That's that's worth recommending to folks. Um, so it, it, um, there, there's a physicality, there's a, well, art is form, right? Um, and that, um, th- that form is, is meant to appeal to incarnated beings. Um, one wonders if angels hear music the way we do. Uh, they can sing songs, we know, but do they, since they don't hear with ears, what do they hear with? One wonders if they uh, read poetry or, or, or make poetry. Uh, do angels know what coffee tastes like? You know, God, and this is very much C.S. Lewis, God created us to be a, a one creature in the universe who can praise him for certain things that no other creatures in the universe are, or, or in all of creation, beyond the universe even, are, are capable of, of, of praising him on. And, and I suspect then that the way we do art, which is so much tied to our senses and the body, um, even angelic imagination must be different from human imagination. Um, I, I suspect that the way we do art is very much unique to uh, human beings. And, and again, a good reason to read the Psalms and then write about the Psalms in the way that Spence did is because they incarnate something um, that is more than the Levitical law, um, more even than um, Paul's gorgeous outline of, um, of of the gospel in the book of Romans. Um, there, there's, yeah, that poetic quality, that incarnational quality that's so significant. Um, and to find then a book written about the Psalms that approaches them in that same psalmic way, if I can invent a word, um, is, again, really delightful. Mm. One of the other things that you said in here, um, you said, if none of the book were written, (laughs) but I read the line, my God, my God, why have I forsaken you? I would have thought it the greatest piece of writing I've seen in a decade. That line has entered my imagination on a permanent basis. I'll never forget it. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty high regards. Um, What's so striking I mean, what's so striking about that, Charlie? Yeah, well, it's the, it's the contrast, isn't it, to what we normally expect. So in the book, um, Spence um, deals with every psalm, um, and then some when you get to Psalm 119, right? Uh, and he gives us just a single verse. So with Psalm 22, he begins, but you are holy. Um which is Psalm 22, verse 3. So he just gives us the one verse from the psalm. Uh, Normally what we might expect, if you were going to quote from Psalm 22, would be verse 1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, But but Spence then flips it on edge. He, He totally turns our expectations, which is something God loves to do to people, 
um, he makes this this artistic twist. I'm, I'm sure there's a word for it. Um, but I read then, my God, my God, and what am I expecting? Well, I'm expecting verse 1, but instead, my God, my God, why have I forsaken you? And it's like, bam, holy cow, um, my, my emotional response. So again, the form matters. It's not just the thing that he's saying, though the thing he's saying is incredibly profound, because who of us doesn't forsake God from time to time? Um, all right, Spence, if you'll let me pick on you, I would have maybe wrote, written it as, my God, my God, why have I forsaken thee? Because that would have rhymed with me. But I get staying away from King James, okay. But but it's just an incredible line. Now, when I say that's going to stick with me, let's face it, when we read books, there might be one or two ideas that stick with us unless we're going to reread those books or, mm -hmm. or we're going to teach those books. Um, so if if I get only one sentence out of this book, this is the sentence that's going to go with me uh, hereafter. So I was I was actually looking at the book again today, and there's a lot of these great one-liners running throughout the text. Um, but I, you know, even only, though I only read it a few weeks ago, there's plenty in here that I marked up that I don't remember that I read. So when I rewrite reread it, it becomes as this wonderful surprise. But if you can find in, in anyone's book, and, and Spence, I know you've done this not only with Lewis, but you love George MacDonald. Um, mm -hmm. And MacDonald's has those great uh, passages that you, that you want to stick with. To, to find a line like that, especially in a, in a first book written by someone, that's just, that's just incredible. And again, it captures the Psalms so well. And if I can do a little bit of, this won't take long, but if I can do just a little bit of personal testimony here. Mm -hmm. um, the three of us know each other from a college where you two fellows graduated and I was a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, eight years ago, I was laid off from that college. So I, I truly was the stereotypical guy in his 50s who was laid off because he was too expensive. So we're going to do budget cuts. I wasn't the only one. There were several other folks laid off. Um, but that was one of the worst times in my life. Um, and it took me, again, two and a half years to find a job. I say again, that's because we were talking about that before we started recording. It took me two and a half years to find a job and 250 job applications. Um, during that time, when I would go to the Bible, I, I started with the Psalms and I read them all the way through. And when I do the Psalms, I don't, I don't do a Psalm a day. I do a Psalm a week and I keep reading it over and over again, which is a great way to read poetry. And so for 150 Psalms, that'd be 150 weeks, three years or so, I just read the Psalms. After that, I thought, well, maybe I'll, um, maybe I'll, I'll, try to read the Bible all the way through again. I try to do that once a decade where I read the Bible all the way through. I got through Genesis and then I just couldn't do it anymore. Mm. The only thing I could read during that, during that wandering in the wilderness time of my life was the Psalms. So I just went back and I started the Psalms over again. And so for, I, th I guess, six years, the only uh, scripture I read, unless I was planning to teach a lesson at church or something like that, the only scripture I read was the scripture that kept me alive during that tough, tough time, and 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 that's the Psalms. And and, and I just want to encourage those who are, are watching or listening, uh, go into the Psalms, especially when you're older. 
all right, or go into the Psalms if you are particularly wounded. I say older because you guys have lived long enough to start regretting everything you've done in life, uh, everything you've done wrong. All right, um, or 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 go into the Psalms if you if you've really been wounded. Um, you you don't and you don't go into them because you want answers. Don't go into them because you want truth. Go into the Psalms because you want to encounter God, and you want to encounter the real both of which are ultimately true. But but in poetry, you have to approach them uh, in, a, in a very different way. Of course, those psalms were written to be songs anyway. Um, but as soon as they were recorded in word, that means they're also poetry. So um, uh, they, they are things to be experienced more than analyzed. Analysis is a descent. All right, and there's much to be learned from it, especially in the study of the of the original language. But poetry should be encountered and experienced in the imagination before it gets uh, analyzed or 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 any specific um, propositions drawn out of it, um, separated out of it. Uh, and and in a very personal way, the Psalms were that way for me. So then, uh, Spence, when I went to your book. I felt like I was reading someone who read the Psalms the way I read the Psalms the last time I read through them. Uh, and again, mm -hmm. so there's that there's wonderful authenticity there, but also a legitimacy. It's a book written by somebody who actually knows how to read the Psalms. And there are a lot of people, there are a lot of preachers, frankly, um, who don't know how to read the Psalms. Uh, I can say that I don't think I really knew how to read the Bible after Bible college. You know, I went to a four-year Christian college. Um, I got a BA in religion. I did I did a, a couple of years of Greek. Um, did that one semester of Hebrew, which, all, which is all but lost by now. But I really feel like until somebody taught me how to read poetry and how to read story, um, which was in graduate school, I didn't really know how to read my Bible. Um, yeah. So, so how we approach the text depends on the kind of literature it is, and uh, the Bible is filled with story and poetry, isn't it? So let's, I mean, I know you've written a couple of, you, you mentioned you have your nine, ninth book coming out. You've written a couple of um, Bible-related things, uh, studies in Romans 1 to 8, right? Your life in the spirit, I see that on your page. And um, uh, you've written a book titled Honest to God, Wrestling Your Way to Intimacy with the Creator. Um, a moment ago, you mentioned the real. You also have this book. The Lion's Country, C.S. Lewis's theory of the real. Is C.S. Lewis's theory of the real your theory of the real? Um, yeah. <laughs> so what is the real? I mean, can you give yeah. us a, a, a summary, an intro to this? Yeah. Um, I, I'd say that, um, well, I might as well do the show and tell part. Yeah. Shameless Please. plug for Charlie's book. There you go. So there you go. Um, when, when, when often when we think of C.S. Lewis, we think of a man who is a champion for truth. But as I dug deeply into Lewis's literature, even his apologetics, his most philosophical theological texts, what I real what I realized was that Lewis was less interested in truth, which is a shocking statement, and more interested in reality. There's an essay he wrote called "Myth Became Fact." in which he says, truth is always about reality, reality, or about something. Reality is that 
about which truth is. So um, God then, Lewis begins, God is the most real thing there is. And uh, that's what he's interested in. And then what God has made is more real. Uh, Heaven, he says in a book, is the most real thing there is um, in the great divorce. Uh, the further we get away from God, uh, the, the deeper we, we fall into wickedness. Um, evil is that movement away from the I am, the being of God, into non-being. Uh, so you get this great moment in, again, Lewis's The Great Divorce, where um, uh, earth is described as no bigger than a pebble in heaven, and on earth, uh, hell would be no bigger than a pebble, in heaven, hell might be the size of, a, of an atom. Hell is descent into non-being. Um, and so that affects Lewis's thoughts about good and evil. Good is a correspondence with reality. Um, evil is not good's opposite in the sense that evil is a thing like good is a thing. Evil is simply a thing that has been perverted by rebellious will. So though there can be good without evil, uh, there cannot be evil without good because evil is a parasite. It simply rides on the back of good by in some way corrupting it. Um, and eventually evil will be done away and, and, and only good remain. Um, so as I, as I realized that, I started looking through Lewis's um, literature and, and, and saw so many times when for Lewis, um, the road to truth is through encounters with the real, uh, encounters with reality. Uh, and so then for Lewis, reality is um, hierarchical. There are levels of reality. Um, on a vertical level, uh, reality might be horizontally. Hierarchical is the wrong word, but um, uh, today we would, we would, again, using a science metaphor, we would talk about a multiverse. Um, so, for example, those of you who are Narnia fans, you think of the magician's nephew, where they walk into the or they fall into the wood between the world, and each pool in that in that um, wood leads to a completely different reality, not just some other planet in our galaxy, but a whole other universe. Um, and, and so he believed that. He also believed that reality was was moral; that there was an ought that was just as real as any is. Um, and, and boy, that was a significant I, I, idea uh, for me. Um, you could almost describe Lewis's view of reality as Platonic, but he, he also goes in directions that Plato doesn't go, especially in terms of enjoying the, the important idea of, of incarnation, uh, of, of the reality that God has created being important of human souls not being trapped inside physical bodies, but being destined for uh, perfected bodies. And then a couple of other really important ideas in uh, that I talk about in the book are, are the idea of um, transposition in which Lewis tries to describe how our relationship with the supernatural um, is not what we normally think of it is. It's, it's not just nature and then something else happens, and it's all very Cecil B. DeMille and big miracles. Um, uh, God, in, in taking any physical nature up into himself, 
um, or even in coming down into our world from the heavenly world is working more like what we do um, when we transpose a song into a minor key or a symphony into a single piano piece. This act of transposition is, is not one reality working in opposition to another reality, um, but it's a fuller reality making itself known in a, uh, a less full reality. Um, and, then, and then also very important to Lewis is the idea of sacrament. Um, and sacrament is important to Lewis because it has potential epistemological implications. So epistemology is about our theory of knowledge how we know, how we can be certain that what we know is right, uh, that sort of thing. And, and one of the significances for Lewis, the, the English professor, is that the distinction that we make between literal and figurative, which we often make in, with kinds of literature, right? That that distinction is one, far more modern than biblical, and two, a distinction that in some situations disappears and sacramental situations are such situations. Uh, the example he gives, of course, we might, have, we might talk about baptism and communion, but the example he gives is of the ascension. Now, heaven is not in the sky and hell is not below the earth. But isn't there something about heaven that is upward and something about hell that is downward. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, when he made that vertical upward motion, which um, some scholars thought laughable uh, earlier in the 20th century, um, Lewis, Lewis would say that his, Christ's disciples did not look at that literally in the sense that, oh, they literally believed heaven was in the sky. But instead, the literal and the figurative were as one for them. And in that moment, it was really one. He literally did ascend. Uh, but the heaven that he went to was not in physical clouds. Um, and and that's, that's sacramental, and it's also transpositional in Lewis's thinking. Um, if I'm going to plug my book, I would, I would just say people, if you don't read anything else, read the last chapter where I summarizes, where I summarize Lewis's total view of heaven. Uh, and mm. I get to include, I got permission to include almost a thousand never before seen words where Lewis describes what it would be like to see the face of God. Mm. Just absolutely beautiful passage. So you're, you, you mentioned before that you're even just this week, you've been working on authenticating uh, C.S. Lewis manuscripts. Are these manuscripts still being discovered? Or are they are they known about? Like, how are people finding these? Like, what, yeah. what's happening? Oh well, um, I know that we don't have another hour for me to tell you all my stories, but um, I'll give you some four examples. A lot of times, uh, what's being discovered, probably five or six times a year, maybe even more than that are Lewis letters. So somebody wrote Lewis, Lewis wrote them back, that person kept the letter, and then passed it on to family members who then eventually um, put it up on auction, all right, or will donate it to a, a library. So that's where a lot of those are coming from. Um, 
One that I found two years ago, two summers ago, was wonderful. It was I was at a Major Lewis collection, which is at Wheaton College uh, near Chicago, and I was going through Lewis's personal library. Well, like most of us, Lewis liked to write notes in his books. And on a blank page in one of the books Lewis um, bought back in 1926, he had written an entire poem that no one knew about. And that's because no one had really wanted to look in that particular book of Lewis's. Uh, so I, I was sort of, because of my love for mm. Lewis's handwriting, I was systematically going through all of his personal library. I only got through about a third of the books. And when I pop this open, I read this entire poem and I go, wait a minute. No, and I don't know this poem at all. So I, I asked a few people and, and everybody who's an expert in Lewis's poetry was saying, that's a brand new Lewis poem. Uh, so that's a way to discover it. Sometimes then there might be things that are, have just not yet been published. So they know we know they're there. The scholars know they're there. But no one has taken it on themselves to do the transcription work, to get the permissions, to do the publishing. Um, there's lots of scrap notebooks where Lewis just wrote lots of ideas before he then sat down with paper and started writing out a whole book. And sometimes those scrap notebooks are filled with things that are gold, and, and we don't, we didn't even know at first what they are uh, until we figure it out. So there's just there, there are still plenty of resources out there, um, and and again, new things being discovered or published all the time. Hmm. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Wow. It's uh, fun. Wow. What, what what are you thinking, Jeremy? We haven't heard from you in a minute. Oh. <laughs> I just like I feel like I'm 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 back in class <laughs> and then just absorbing it and uh, enjoying it. Um, oh gosh, there's a few things that popped up um, earlier. I think I'm, you were talking about something transpositioning or um, what was the transposition, word? Transposition, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like when we transpose and and sacrament and um, and one of the things that I, I was curious about if I were to like follow the path of obsessively studying Lewis on your level. It's just, I had this thought that Lewis somehow had integrated within him a, a stream of Celtic Christianity, which would have come through George MacDonald, who was definitely influenced by Celtic Christianity at the very twilight, at the end of that, that's that season of, of the Christian, you know, history. And they, they have a high mindedness about the created world and how, the, the the door between the spiritual and the physical is thin. They have these concepts of thin places, um, mm -hmm. islands like Iona or mountaintops, that sort of thing. And um, and I remember reading about this um, guy named J. Philip Newell wrote a book uh, called Listening to the Heartbeat of God or the Heart of God. And the ca the Catholic Church tend to look at Peter, uh, you know, as the as the the head of the church, but the Celtic Church tended to view John and especially the image of John leaning on Christ's chest at the last supper and the idea that he was listening to the heartbeat of God. So there's this idea that kept, or the image that kept coming in my mind or thinking about spirit and, um, and matter and creation. And you, you talked about how they weren't, uh, these like completely separate things. And the best image I can come up with is like a Celtic knot work. We have two distinct ribbons, but they're 
absolutely interwoven. And in some moments you have the spiritual might take kind of precedence over the physical, but then the physical might seem, you know, by appearance, take precedence over the spiritual, but they're always there distinct, but in, you know, inseparable interwoven. Um, and that, yeah, that's some of the things that was going through my mind as you were, uh, talking about sacrament and whatnot. For, for folks who are interested in the concept of transposition, uh, Lewis actually wrote a, a sermon, um, and that can be found in his book, The Weight of Glory, which is a series of seven or eight uh, sermons or lectures that Lewis gave. Uh, transposition, I think, is the second one in the book after the, um, the, the Weight of Glory sermon, which is also fantastic to read. But yeah, transposition, uh, something Lewis explains himself in, in, in that short piece, which is probably available online somewhere too. Hmm. Well, you, you've also written Charlie, uh, it looks like a, a series of novels and I don't know how many, I, I see three of them on your page, uh, all sort of with this subtitle of a tale of Solomon star. Uh, I'm assuming there's some kind of name pun intended there, although I could be wrong. Um, and by the way, if you're watching or listening, you can uh, check out Charlie W. Star with two R's on Amazon, and you can see his author page. And uh, the, the Tale of Solomon Star books, if you have Kindle Unlimited, uh, you can actually get those for free. I don't know if you know that, Charlie, but uh, they're free on Kindle Unlimited. So um, tell us a little bit about this uh, series you have going on here with a Tale of Solomon Star. Um, the, the series is my uh, Middle Earth, though I don't make claims for it being anywhere near as good. Uh, Tolkien's Middle Earth concept arose in his mind at a very young age and stayed with him his, his entire life. Um, the concept of a series of books um, about a single character arose out of childhood imaginings, but but sort of came together uh, one night in, I'm going to say, June of 1985, about a month before I got married. So we're looking at 37 years ago now, um, and where I created an outline for the life of Solomon Star, set thousands and thousands of years in the future. Um, then as I was going through grad school, um, there were some adjustments. And then when I started teaching uh, college, um, that solidified more into the concept of seven books. Uh, so the first book, The Heart of Light, is the one I started the earliest. Um, I think it's the most imaginative and most mythic of the books, um, mm. and perhaps the most literary, um, and is patterned in part on the same journey that occurs in Conrad's Heart of Darkness. But rather than saying, um, when we look into the depth of the abyss, having stripped away all of civilization uh, in naked nature, and we find darkness that makes us cry the horror, uh, like, like, like in the Conrad book or in the uh, um, wonderful film version called Apocalypse Now, um, there is instead a beautiful light and wonder beneath um, all things. And, uh, and, and, and that wondrousness then is what I wanted to express. My, my goal was, to, was, of course, to write a, an interesting story, a story that people would, uh, would enjoy reading. Um, and I also wanted then to 
make it, and, and, and this is based on something C.S. Lewis said, make it a book that wasn't a Christian book, but a book written by a Christian. Mm. Um, and, and that's been my goal for the first three books. Um, so the first book is about Solomon's journey to find his father on a jungle uh, journey um, on, a, on, a, on a far distant planet. Uh, the second and third book are about war. They're about battle. They're about uh, epic struggles uh, in a science fiction universe. Um, so hopefully they're, uh, they're, they're Star Wars with a little bit of, um, of uh, more interest as I pick up other topics, uh, a little bit more depth, although I certainly wouldn't talk negatively about Star Wars because I think it's wonderfully mythical. Um, so that, that gets me for the, through the first three books. The th third one came out a year ago, January. Um, and then I'm currently working on the fourth book, which will be more overtly religious. Mm -hmm. um, in his first journey, Solomon encountered a really significant truth, but it wasn't enough. And then he's called back to the war, and he has to fight a battle that he doesn't want to fight but he does it in order to save lives. Uh, after that, he goes on a journey in which ultimately he's looking for God. And so in this fourth book, I really try to focus on that journey and on him making his way to God. Um, but you guys pray for me because this fourth book has been the hardest one so far. Um, the other books I could write roughly in chronological order, but this one's been a nightmare. I had mm. lots of bits and pieces, and so I, I've started cramming them together. But so I've got a, be, a beginning, I've got chunks to the middle, I've got most of the end, but then there are all these bits and pieces missing. All right. And I'm just trying to let the Lord, you mm. know, carry me one idea at a time um, mm. to get this fourth book done. But I hope to get it done in the next couple of years and, and have it out. And then as, as long as I'm alive, I'll keep working on it. Uh, down to the end. But I think that people who liked C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy will uh, will certainly be interested in, in, in reading these books. And I know mm -hmm. that they've been a, an important part of my imaginative life, uh, literally for decades. So wow. thanks for asking. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that quote by, by Lewis, not, not uh, a Christian book, but written by a Christian. And we've yeah. been like talking a lot about art and poetry and um, I can't help, but <laughs> I can't help, but think of sort of modern Christian music. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but like the, I don't mean to like beat up on, on Christian, Christian musicians uh, but a lot of the stuff, right, is just straight corny or uh, very unimaginative, very seemingly unartistic, very boilerplate, watered down, and almost, you know, like I turn on my, my daughter, my young, my daughter, she loves Caleb, the Christian radio station, listens to that. It's like her alarm. She wakes up to Caleb. <laughs> And is listening into it until she goes to bed, right? And she would listen to it if she could while she was sleeping. Uh, but for me, I'm she's in the car. We gotta have K-Love on, and uh, it drives me kind of crazy sometimes because of what appears to be a lot of pointless drivel and low quality <laughs> art. 
Um, I'm I'm wondering what is it there? Maybe you can help me put words to this. Maybe Jeremy, you can chime in too. But what is it that that I'm noticing there that makes the art seem so much less than a U2 song that, you know, I could climb the highest mountain, you know, like something like that, that seems very Christian in character. I don't know if I can put my finger on it. So I'm wondering if you guys can help me put my finger on that. I can speak from an industry side. Um, not that I'm an industry insider, but I'm, I've become friends with a few people who are, have been in somewhat famous bands. And, um, there's a, I went to a school called the recording workshop and learned about sound engineering and recording music, got a, a five week intensive school. And they showed us a, um, Oh shoot. I'm going to forget the name. They're a Canadian rock band, real popular. Um, a Nickelback. They, they played a Nickelback song. And then they played us another Nickelback song and then they played them at the same exact time. One on the left speaker, one on the right speaker, both in the same key, both at the same tempo. And they all, and both of them had the changes in the exact same spots. Mm. Core showed up at the same spot. It sounded, you know, a little bit messy, but what they demonstrated was, you know, the record label, uh, producers, whatever, this was a huge hit. Now go make another one just like it. A formula. So there is a functional aspect in which mm. art becomes very utilitarian and it's there as a product. And this is one of the reasons I've been drawn to a lot of Celtic and folk music or music uh, that came out of Scotland, Ireland, showed up in places like Newfoundland. You have a band like Great Big Sea and they do their own original music, but they do these old sea shanties and these old songs that weren't written to make a dollar. They weren't written to be a product. They helped, you know, seafaring people do a job or they helped convey a story. They had a different kind of purpose in relationship to the community. And in those communities, it was very much a part of everyday life. People would gather in the kitchen, they call it kitchen party, and they would all pull out their instruments and sing these songs together. And most of these songs that Great Big Sea sings, they grew up hearing bouncing on their grandparents' knee. And, uh, but on the industry side of it, you have something that's become a product and the Christian industry is, is not separate from the so-called secular industry. The Christian industry is a subset of the, the, the broader, larger uh, mainstream industry. There's like three major level labels, Sony, Warner, and another one. And most of the Christian companies and, uh, record labels are owned are subsets of Warner brothers or whatever. And, uh, you bring in the religious side of it and you have, you know, um, the, the target demographic, which is, there's a name for it, a woman's name. I forget. Maybe you've heard it before, Michael. Karen, or, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It could be Karen. We'll call her Karen. Karen's a 42 year old single soccer mom. And it's like, if we can get her buying this product, listening in, we can probably get everyone else in. And when you consider how splintered the church really is theologically, you can't go into a whole lot of depth because then you risk isolating and alienating. Oh, this is something that the Roman Catholics would disagree with. This is something the Baptists will disagree with. But if you have something that's really kind of theologically thin and bland, a lot of people are going to be like, okay, yeah, I agree with that. And you're going to have more people buying. So people are writing for the end goal of selling a product that we slap the name Jesus on. 
and there is such a thing as Jesus per lines. And uh, the JPL meter is like, oh, this song doesn't sound Christian enough. We have to have the name of Jesus put in there more times. And it's a literal thing. Uh, my friend uh, Brian McSweeney, uh, who used to sing in the band uh, Seven Day Jesus, um, went into that. They produced their second album, and the record people came in. And it's like, uh, we don't think there's enough Jesus in this record. And he's like, these songs are clearly Christian. Mm -hmm. And they were pushing him to change the lyrics of a record that was pretty much completely done in order to make it sound more Christian so that it would sell more units. And, so, uh, I, so, I mean, your short answer, your short answer is that money is essentially the, the cause of, of bad Christian art or lower quality Christian art. Is that what you're saying? That's, uh, I think, a big part of it. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I think again about like, like the U2 song I was pointing out, um, not overtly Christian, but pretty incredible. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know. What are you thinking, Charlie? Well, I, I, I totally get what Spence is saying in terms of um, Christians writing fiction, because the, the number one um, Christian fiction uh, resource, or, or, or if you want to be successful writing Christian fiction, um, it's you're going to have to write Amish love stories, um, and that's that uh, 42 year old soccer mom that you're talking about. Those are the kinds of stories that are going to get bought um, because they're the ones that are going to get sold. I think there is another reason, and I think it explains why Christian film is generally so bad. Um, with only some exceptions, although that is changing, praise the Lord. Um, mm. and, and that is that we don't have, uh, especially Protestants, we don't have a theology of imagination. Mm. Um, so for, and, I, and I'll try to do this quickly, but if, if I say that something is imaginary, we would say it's not real. And if we say it's not real, we're going to say it's not true. Now, that's what we've been taught about imagination, but it's wrong. The imagination can connect us to reality, even fictional reality, which I talk about in the new book, in ways that um, so-called realistic um, historical uh, storytelling uh, can't do. The imagination is a mode of knowledge. And we don't have a theology of imagination. And, and again, I, I, I say this among Protestants because Protestantism arises essentially at the same time as the Enlightenment. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the avenues towards knowledge gets left behind. Iconoclasm is part of the reason for that, too. Um, but because we are rather blind to understanding what imagination is, we don't understand what art is for. Uh, Lewis has another wonderful little essay called Horrid Red Things. In the essay, he tells the story of um, uh, a mother and a daughter uh, whom he overheard having a conversation, and the mother says to the daughter that she shouldn't uh, take too many aspirins because they're poisonous, to which the daughter replies, why are they poisonous? They can't be. They don't have any horrid red things inside them. So the little girl clearly understood what poison was, but she thought that poison only occurred in things that if you cut it open, had horrid red things. So she had a correct idea, but a wrong image. 
And that image then was definitely influencing her view of reality. Uh, and so for Lewis to have right images about things is as important as having right ideas. And through images, we can, we can speak to people and we can teach people in ways that, that mere, um, mere words, that abstract statements can't, um, can't do. Lewis talks about this also then in an um, essay called The Language of Religion, in which he says there are three kinds of language, average or normal, scientific language, and poetic language. And the thing he says about scripture is that it operates in the world either of normal or poetic language, not in scientific language, which hadn't been made up yet, right? Um, and he says much of what we experience in life cannot be said in literal terms. He uses, for example, the idea of trying to explain what it means to say Jesus is the Son of God. It's a metaphor. It's not a literal statement. If you wanted to make it literal, you might say something like, there is between Jesus and God an asymmetrical, social, harmonious relation involving homogeneity. Now, that explains better on a literal level what it means that there is a first person and second person of the Trinity and they have a relationship which is similar but different. On the other hand, you might just use a metaphor. Jesus is the Son of God. That is true, but it's not literal. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's shocking to a lot of Christians to really think about that. Nothing we say about God is literal because God is transcendent. Everything we say about God will be in some way um, metaphorical. It could be simple statements like God is love, God is our father, but he's not a father in the same way that, that I'm a father, mm -hmm. right? My, my children didn't exist, but the son has always coexisted with the father. So, uh, so yeah, we don't have a theology of imagination, therefore, we tend to think that the purpose of art is to be celluloid sermons. The purpose of art is simply to make truth statements. Uh, mm -hmm. And we end up then with very bad storytelling. Um, and, and Lewis speaks very much against this. Um, and uh, one good place to look for that is in his book, An Experiment in Criticism, for those who are interested. Uh, I've also written some chapters for books or essays on the purpose of art according to C.S. Lewis. Uh, and if you guys would like me to just send you PDFs of those or, or Word mm -hmm. docs of just those individual things, send me an email. I'll be glad to send them to you. But, yeah, um, nobody in Protestantism no, and, and no evangelicals for a couple hundred years have really known what art is for except mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis. And fortunately, C.S. Lewis has started to reach people who are um, – you know, conservative Christians, true classical yeah. Christians might be a better term for it, uh, who are starting to learn what art is really about. And so, again, Lewis said to to do the quote accurately, he said something like, what we do not, what we need is not more Christian books, but more books about other subjects written by Christians with their Christianity latent. Yeah. And Lewis would say then, in especially in regard to his Narnia books, that might help us then get past those watchful dragons that keep people from experiencing the wonder of belief. Something, mm -hmm. I'll end with this then on, on this topic, something that Lewis and MacDonald both said um, is that one of the great powers of myth, and I think we can apply this to storytelling in general, is one of the great powers of myth is that it lifts the veil of the familiar. 
when things become too familiar to us, they become um, dull, bland, even cliche. A verse like John 3.16 is something we can all quote in our sleep. And we're so familiar with it that we forget the power of it. Yeah. Uh, but then in a great movie called The Apostle, Robert Duvall um, takes this little baby and holds it up and says, now, look at this little beautiful baby, right? And he says, look at this little beautiful hand. Now, imagine taking an old board and, and, and driving a nail through this hand into that old board. I couldn't do that to my son. I don't have that much love in me. But mm-hmm. God does. And that's mm-hmm. John three sixteen, poetically mm-hmm. spoken, imaginatively spoken. Mm. Um, so, so that's, that's what Lewis would, what would teach us about the nature of art, a simple way of saying it. Art does not say art shows Mm. and when it incarnates, all right, word has to become flesh. Otherwise God could have just kept talking. Mm. All right. And, and so in art word has to become flesh and show rather than say, and when we're doing that, we're making good art. Uh, and again, that's the other thing. That's the thing I appreciate about uh, Spence's book here on the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not a reading of the Psalms. It is an extension of psalmic um, poetic desire mm-hmm. uh, written from this um, contemporary perspective. All right, I'll shut up. Yeah, no. I, I say I, one I, thing you made me think of is uh, you mentioned George McDonald towards the end is somewhere in his unspoken sermons he starts off at the sermon saying that uh, spirit, truth, and language are like the Red Cross Knight and Lady Una, or spirit and truth are like the Red Cross Knight and Lady Una, and language like the Red Dwarf that lags behind carrying the lady's needments. Oh, that's nice. That's from Spencer. Not you, Spencer. Uh, (laughs) Um, That's, uh, what is that? Uh, The Fairy Queen, right? Yeah, he may have been inferring someone. Yeah, that's the Fairy Queen. Yeah, that's from the first okay. one. Okay. Yeah, that's nice. That's good. And the mm. myth thing, too, is just made me think I just actually preached my first sermon recently, first properly prepared sermon. And I kind of told my testimony in relationship to the film Braveheart. And uh, I had a dramatic God encounter because of that film. And uh, there's criticisms. It's not historically accurate, but, you know, so little is known about this actual historical his Scottish figure, Sir William Wallace. And... Um, at the end of what was building up over months of watching this film, I had a vision of the cross. And then slowly I began to realize that what Randall Wallace was doing was retelling the gospel story through this historic Scottish story. He said it was basically a story of Christ told in a kilt. And as much as anything else, he turned to the New Testament for inspiration, which did it make sense not to throw, my dad's probably gonna listen to this. I'm not throwing you under the bus, dad, I love you. But at the time, he, it didn't make sense to him what I was trying to express and what I was experiencing. Because he's like, people don't get saved by movies. You know, the Protestant thing is, it's got to be the altar call. It's got to be the word. But, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, well, I was. It wasn't Braveheart that saved me, but it was Christ speaking to me and ministering to me through this film mm-hmm. that brought me to an encounter with, with Christ on the cross. I had a vision of saw his feet in front of me. And it was because Mel Gibson and Randall Wallace, they created a medieval myth that basically told the story of Christ. And it completely um, changed my life. And it was done through myth telling. Mm. 
Well, there's a lot uh, we could keep going. I think for a long time about this. I I think <laughs> the the influence of of imagination storytelling on homiletics something I'm, I'm very interested in. For example, um, yeah, su- super important. Um, but we'll we'll kind of. Uh, I guess start to wrap it up here and want to thank both of you for, for your time today and for coming on and for sharing. One of the things that uh, we like to do here at the end of these episodes is what we call a parting shot. Uh, both of you were just rattling off George McDonald and C.S. Lewis left and right. Uh, Charlie, I'm wondering if, if you have a parting shot, some kind of quote to leave us with, that something to chew on, something to ponder uh, as we we come to a close here, yeah. As as, um, as soon as you mentioned that before we started recording, that we'd be doing the the parting shot. The quote came to me immediately, um, and here I'm sharing with everyone another unpublished C.S. Lewis sentence, hmm. and uh, hopefully we won't get in trouble for this one. But uh, I mentioned how there are these notebooks where Lewis just wrote down ideas. Sometimes he started a story or sometimes it's a fragment. I remember on one page in one of these notebooks, there's a single sentence that absolutely blew me away in the same way that um, Jeremy's sentence for Psalm 22 blew me away. And in that sentence, again, which just appears on a page by itself, there's there's nothing else on either side of it that, that connects to it. Lewis says, we talk about the, the difficulty of surrendering our will to God, but how if his will for us is so much more interesting than our will for ourselves? Mm. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not uh, word for word, but that's close. Mic drop. Yeah. Yeah, mic drop. Wow. Well, again, thank you guys for uh, your time and for sharing. And uh, if you guys, uh, you guys watching and listening, have a moment, go get a copy of Jeremy's book. Um, go get copies of Charlie's uh, books and uh, dive into his uh, novel series or some of his uh, uh, other resources on Lewis or scripture or uh, whatever. And uh we appreciate everyone supporting the podcast and listening. Please share this with everybody, and uh, we hope that you'll tune back in. So, uh, Jeremy and Charlie, uh, until next time, aloha. Interested in growing your ancient language skills but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glossa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glossahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.